This is Bonjour Chai, the Culture Camp edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, festival season is upon us, and we are talking Jewish culture. Toronto's Jewish Music Week is this coming week. The Toronto Jewish Film Festival is imminent, and Klez Canada isn't too far behind either. We talked to Helen Zuckerman of the TJFF and Eric Stein and Sebastian Schulman of the Ashkenaz and Klez Canada Festivals to get the pulse of Jewish culture in Canada for the summer of 2022. Plus, we get a special word of wisdom from Shlomi Steinmetz on the first yard site of his son, Dovi. Alana, David, you have festival memories? Are you festival people? I mean, I go to the yes. Fringe Festival every year, depending on where I'm living. And I have, I have fond memories of going to the Jazz Festival growing up and bouncing on, like, that giant piano on the ground. You know what I'm talking about? Of course. Of course. We have pictures of my kids all the time. Yeah. Do you know what they call the Fringe Festival in Israel? Um, I do know, but I don't remember. Can you remind me? Uh, the uh, the seat Festival? Oh, it was a joke. No, I, I see. That was a joke. <laughs> nice try. Okay. Yeah. Although, if I ever programmed a film festival, a French festival, I would call it the uh, the the Tzitzit Tzit Festival. I think that'd be funny. Speaking of fringe, I think the best time I was I was living in the UK at the time. I went up to I went to work for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Spent about four weeks there. It was it was a, just a nonstop party. Like that city shut down and just t- the fringe took over the entire city of Edinburgh. People were out. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. I went on some scotch drinking tours, and basically you were you were working during the day and partying till two or three in the morning. I mean that was so much fun, and I, after two years of being in this pandemic, I think I'm really excited to get back to some festivals like the Stampede, which is coming up in July. The Stampede. I was in the Edinburgh Fringe. It was awesome. I can attest to what you said. <laughs> yeah. I. How about you, Abby? Um, I'm a big ja- Montreal Jazz Festival goer, um, and not just to the like free outdoor whatever. I'm one of those you know jazz snobs that goes and gets at least one, if not two, paid concerts every night throughout the festival whenever I can. Um, this week, this year will be interesting because uh, my wife has her theater run uh, that that whole week. So any concert I want to go to has to be babysitter worthy um, because I'll be leaving kids at home and. Uh, Oh, well, we'll figure so it out. what's your babysitter-worthy pick of the year? Oh, I don't know. There's, so there's far. a lot. Um, I can't even think about it. Give us one. On there. Um, well, the closing concert is a Saturday night after Shabbat. Like Shabbat ends at like 9.40, and uh, it's at 9 o'clock, but it's The Roots. And that's the big outdoor one that'll be like a quarter of a million people um, outside. That should be fun. Um, but uh, Gregory Porter I saw is playing, and... Uh, there's some of the Israeli uh, jazz musicians that I'm always a big fan of. Um, I'm trying to remember which ones. McKay McRaven is playing. There's a lot of good uh, shows uh, that will be coming up. And Cecilia McLaurin Savant, I believe, is also doing a show. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited. Looking forward to it. Before we go to our main uh, topics, I really want to remind you that our first live show is coming up this Wednesday night. Uh, We're partnering with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation for Jewish Heritage Month. We have a wonderful program lined up. It's around Sephardic uh, history and Sephardic life in Canada. You get to see it live. Alana, you may ask yourself, why should I see it live? Um, well, good question. Why should I see it live, Avi? You actually should have to see it live because you have to be there. Um, but your friends That's should true. see it live um, because it's way more fun. You get to see how we put the show together. And for those in attendance, we will have a Q&A segment that you can finally ask us whatever you want to know um, about us. Right. Uh, ask David about uh, his imminent nuptials. Ask Alana about uh, what it was like to be uh, an actor in a production uh, recently at Tov, if you went to see it and you wanted to go have a talk back, but she wasn't there, um, here's your chance. Ask about anything um, about our lives, the host stuff. We may answer it. We may not. Um, but uh, we'll 
try to make Bonjour Chai live a lot of fun for everybody. We will put the Eventbrite link in the show notes. You can visit the Canadian Race Relations Foundation's website and just click on the link on their homepage. So come check us out this Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. on Zoom live. Um, You have to register, but it is free. And just register on Eventbrite, and uh, we hope to see you all there. Come down and see how the gefilte fish gets made. Mm, that's a that's a good analogy because it's just as stinky as sausage and nobody wants to see how it's made. I like it. I like it. I was I was waffling between kishkas and gefilte. Kish could be more yeah, okay, good. Um but it's Sephardic, so come see how the Daphina is being made. From award-winning journalist Marsha Lederman comes Kiss the Red Stairs, a compelling memoir of Holocaust survival, intergenerational trauma, divorce, and discovery that will guide readers through several lifetimes of monumental change. Marsha was five when a simple question led to a horrifying answer. She asked her mother why she didn't have any grandparents. Her mother told her the truth, the Holocaust. Decades later, her parents dead and herself a mother to a young son, Marsha begins to wonder how much history has shaped her own life. Reeling in the wake of a divorce, she craves her parents' help. But in their absence, she is gripped by a need to understand the trauma they suffered, and she begins her own journey into the past to tell her family stories of loss and resilience. Kiss the Red Stairs, available now wherever books are sold. So there's more film, TV, and video content created nowadays than ever before. So much of this is streamed online, but film festivals remain an important part of the dialogue. Jewish films are also being produced more than ever before, and with us to unpack questions about Jewish films and Jewish arts festivals is Helen Zuckerman, Artistic Director of the Toronto Jewish Film Festival. Helen, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you for inviting me. The mission statement for the TJFF concludes with, we aim to be a Jewish film festival and not a film festival just for Jewish people. My sense of that is that you aim to uh, show Judaism to the wider non-Jewish world as much as you are trying to do this for the Jewish community. Um, Can you unpack that for us a bit and tell us, uh, are there demographics that show that that is actually reaching its goal? Are there a lot of non-Jews that do come to the Toronto Jewish Film Festival? Um, And, you know, how does that fit into the overall mandate of what you see Jewish film? Well, you, you know, attendance at a festival is subjective. It depends on the film that you're showing. Um, uh, if you're showing, uh, you know, we talked, uh, there was a question about the audience is older. Well, if you're showing a French romance on a Saturday night, you're going to get a lot of younger people. We, the aim of the festival, actually, uh, you know, anti-Semitism is the big word now. We've been fighting anti-Semitism for 30 years. This is our 30th year, our festival. And the object of the exercise was to present ourselves to the bigger world, warts and all, and and to do away with some of the myths people had about Jews. Uh, so that's been that that's how that's why we say it's not a, a film festival for the Jews, it's a Jewish film festival. Because some of the stories that we present are family stories, and whether you're Italian or Jewish or Greek or 
whatever. There are family stories that happen in in every family. So in that vein, are you picking, I noticed you do have a lot of Holocaust films, and I can understand how that would fall under the umbrella of trying to fight anti-Semitism. How do you select other films? I noticed you have a lot of Israeli content. You have some that premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. So are you trying to show uh, other films that would just appeal to other people so that they destigmatize this idea of how Jewish people are in their minds? Like, what, what do you use to pick your movies? Well, we tried to, one of the years, our, our uh, saying was Beyond Bathurst Street. And when we choose films, we try to choose a balance. We don't want to be an Israeli film festival, so we're careful with the amount of Israeli films. We have films from 16 countries this year, I think, Syria and, and uh, I mean, uh, all over the place. And every year we're surprised by where these um, films come from. Like one year we had a film from Iceland. Now, who knew that there were Jews living in Iceland? We've got a film about the Jews from uh, Cochin in India. So it's just we're trying to represent to the world and to ourselves, actually ourselves as well, how many, where Jews come from. I've been doing this for 30 years, and there isn't one programming meeting where somebody, or sometimes it's me, comes in and says, I didn't know that. Well, that's pretty terrific. I looked at all the films, and I counted, tell me if I'm wrong, I didn't count I, I, I bracketed the archival films because they, they clearly probably stand in a category of themselves, but I counted 62 films, including the um, shorts. Um, out of that, I saw, f- uh, I saw 14 Holocaust films. I saw 25 films directed by women, of which nine of which were, the sh- were in the shorts category. So we're really looking at like more like 16, right, um, out of 50, out of 40 or so um, women, right? And, and, a lot of, um, so, so, and, and a lot of this was very Ashkenormative, right, in the sense that the, the overwhelming majority of the films were uh, Ashkenazi-centered um, and skewing towards historical um, ideas, right? If you look at the biography category, uh, most of them are older Jewish authors, um, and older male Jewish authors. Um, is this really an accurate picture of what Judaism is today? Are, there was only one film about Jews of color. Um, there was not any film about the LGBT community except for one short about drag kings from 100 years ago, right? I don't really see a lot that younger Jews are going to go and say this is something, or even younger non-Jews, that are going to go and say, wow, this is something which makes Judaism relevant and interesting to me. Well, I mean, we're at the mercy of what's out there. We don't make the films. So we can only, as far I as... I spoke to be- filmmakers who told me that there's a lot of films out there that are being shut out of film festivals because they are not relevant to the uh, actual or perceived audience, which are older Jewish folks. Well, I can only tell you, mm-hmm. we get... Six over 600 submissions. We're also doing, and, and we take them out. Last year we had uh, four LG films on, on gay, gay people. We had four of them. This year we have one. We're at the mercy of what's out there. What can I tell you? We don't make them. We don't, they're not submitted to us. We're hungry for films that we think would attract a younger audience. Um, I want to tell you, though, there is some interesting stuff I don't know if we're going to talk about um, the effect of the pandemic, but if we are, I have some relevant things to say. The pandemic, you know, Leonard Cohen always said there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Well, the film festival had a lot of light come in, unfortunately, because it was the pandemic. 
What happened was the first year we exploded and we went into the whole province of Ontario, which we had never done before. Then, although, you know, a lot of our audience is elderly and liked watching from their home because, as one man put it, it's closer to his refrigerator. By the same token, it was good for people who had young children because the young children go to sleep. They don't have to get a babysitter. They don't have to worry about driving. And I think we're going to find we're doing... uh, in, in, you know, in theater this year, we're going to find that there are a lot of younger families that have been attracted because it's been convenient. But this year we have a bigger thing. This year on June the 16th, all our films are going online and you can watch them whenever you want, not when we want you to watch them. This is your choice. You'll make your own schedule. So, uh, Helen, I want to just, I'll come to that question about the digital sphere right now. But, Avi, I I mean, I'll have to disagree right now with, I think there's a lot of wonderful films out there in terms of a lot of Israeli films that have a lot of different stories to tell. You know, we've got Greener Pastures, Perfect Strangers, One More Storyline in the Sand, even Neighbors. And we are talking about stories that I have never seen or experienced before. And these are a lot of films that I, as a younger person, do want to engage with. Now, Helen, in terms of the question of the digital landscape that we're in now, I I guess what I'm curious about is why come to your festival in Toronto? Why participate in this online festival when I could go to any number of festivals, Jewish or non-Jewish, like, you know, the 92nd Street? Why? What is local and what is special about you that I want to engage with your festival as opposed to streaming to Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, or even New York City? Or even just clicking on the artist's Vimeo and watching it streaming direct from there. We have an exceptionally loyal audience. By the way, David, you need to watch Jews of the Wild West. You, I, I do indeed. I saw that. Hysteria. in it. Yes. I'll tell you, it's my most favorite film in the festival this year. It's so it's so terrific. Well, the festivals, we have sort of a gentleman's agreement in that gentle people's agreement. We geoblock and we try not to step on each other's toes because there's room for everybody. We're all in the same business. We all want to, you know, spread Jewish culture. But yet we don't want to step on people's toes. So we, for example, there's a film festival in Hamilton and one in Ottawa, and often we talk to them if they're getting a film that's a premiere. There's enough for everybody. We need to all share this planet properly. So if you want to stream somewhere else, that's your option, I guess. But I think uh, it's nice to be at home. And also we have a lot of Q's and A's that we record almost every film has a Q&A, N- not, not so other people. So it, it makes it a little, it makes it a little more homey. And when we have a foreign film, we try to put a Canadian spin on it. So, so by, by interviewing people who are, you know, local or Canadian. Or and have you seen the demographics in terms of young versus old? You know, who is coming to your festival? It's, are the young people coming? It's, it depends. As I said, it's, it's film driven. And, and this year is going to be a good, um, because we have, you know, I think it's 20 in person. It's going to be a good uh, showing of who's who. And we're going to be able to see how and whether our audience changed in the three years. It's mostly eyeballing. You know, you, you come into the theater and you, you look around and you see who's there. I mean, we had a film a few years ago with Natalie Portman 
the, there were a bunch of kids that came. That And the other thing that, that's a riot is the young people don't RSVP. They don't buy their tickets ahead of time. It's like, oh, it's Tuesday. I have nothing to do. I'm going to a movie. The, the Portman film, we were at the Bloor. It was over 700 seats. And we were sold out. And I, we turned away a, a lot of young people. And I said, why didn't you buy your ticket last week? Well, we didn't know we wanted to come, you know. So that's the other part that makes us nervous. Right. I, I just want to go further into how you so select your films. Because even in terms of, let's say, Israeli content, I know some film festivals, they try to show both sides of it. They'll try to show people who are more pro-Israeli, and then they'll show people who are more pro, like an Arab perspective. And that goes with all other categories. So when you're choosing these Jewish films, are you consciously trying to pick things that, okay, this will appeal to young people and this will appeal to people from this political spectrum and this, or you kind of are picking more what you personally think is relevant to fighting anti-Semitism, as you said before. The programming committee consists of six people. Uh, I'm one of them, and I'm outvoted many times because it's not a film festival for me. It's a film festival for the city. So there are six people of all orientations on all ages. So it's not a question of and when we get controversial Israeli films, um, we weigh the, we don't mind playing controversial Israeli films because that's where most, most of the controversy is. We try to have the filmmaker available so that people can talk to the filmmaker. Sometimes we can show two sides of the story, sometimes we can't. Like this year we have a film, Ehud Barak Talks, and the image of victory in Nesher's new film. But we also have the blue box, and we have Tankura. So the decision is always, do we show them? Because we don't want to offend the community, but we have an obligation to show good films, no matter what side they sit on. And with all due respect to, this, to uh, the community here, we've had very little blowback. In, in the years that we've shown. I think that you get very little blowback, if you ask me, because you, the, the films that you th that one thinks might be really controversial are not nearly as controversial as they are. I spoke to a couple of filmmakers this week, um, young Jewish filmmakers, um, and they told me about their wider community, and they gave me a sort of a lens onto what's going on with them, and they told me that they are getting shut out almost exclusively from so many of these festivals because they are doing stories that they say are not relevant. The, the way that they said it were for APEC, boomers right and that this was not that they have basically turned their backs on film festivals even though they know that film festivals are one of the best ways to further their career and to network and to be part of it and they say that they do not get any image nobody looks at emerging jewish filmmakers they want to see big big splashy uh, established films that speak to a certain narrative and I mean, I looked at there, how many of the directors are doing, you know, things that are, are stories that are younger, stories that are speaking to people in their 20s and 30s? Avi, they have they submitted our, their films to us? I, I, I don't know if they've submitted to Toronto. I'm sure that many of them have. And well, sometimes I, how many, films. Sometimes, I'm not, I'm, I'm sure that they are. I'm not, I'm not dealing with the quality of it, but, but there has to be a space well, for emerging, uh, you know, filmmakers. One of the things that I noticed, for example, at the Atlanta Film Festival, and I know that they have jury prizes for, for different categories and you don't, but one of the things that I found fascinating we, with the we, Atlanta we, Film Festival, we actually do. oh, you do. So every jury, every jury in the Atlanta Film Festival has one undergraduate out of the three members of the jury. 
right, has a young student that is there um, to, to go and say that, you know, this point of view should be represented as well. Um, and are, are there young people that are part of the juries here? Are there young people that are part of the selection committees? That she are said that there to- was before. I, I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna challenge Avi on this. And uh, David, I'm roping you into it. But w- when we were preparing for this, we all took a look at all the different films. And David and I, who are the, the, the younger end of things, um, late millennials, as you put it before, um, we actually found a lot of films that we were interested in. And it's hard to say whether that's because, you know, we, we both work in the arts. We're actors. So we probably will go to th- something like a film festival uh, more than the average person. But I wrote a whole list of movies that I would be interested to see. And I found a lot of them quite relevant. I think by saying that we're, we don't have movies that are relevant for the younger people, you're doing it's a disservice to the younger people. You're assuming they don't want to find out about their history. You're assuming all sorts of things. I mean, I'm not saying that they don't. I'm not saying that all these films are bad, but I'm saying that so much of the films seem to be in a very specific genre, which is history, Holocaust, um, Ashkenazi, um, stories of it for, for an old generation. You know, when you see Rock Camp and the last, the, the, the most recent rock star that they talk about is somebody who's around in the 70s uh, and 80s, right? That, that, that's not necessarily, right? There's a lot of documentaries about a lot of bands that are Jewish that, have, that are bands over the last five, 10 years. Um, you know, I, I'm not seeing things that, uh, you know, and I'm also not seeing that inclusion in that, um, and also the participatory nature of it all, right? That's another thing that I notice is that it's just here's a bunch of films and, um, you know, that's a, the, the thing that I found the most egregious, for example, was that you have a whole section of films on race um, and none of those are integrated into the festival. I'm not sure I understand what you're if saying. I didn't, if I didn't look through the website, I wouldn't mm-hmm. see that, that the Toronto Jewish Film Festival has uh, a selection of films on race that are available, right? Uh, why are they not being, why are there no films about race within the Jewish community that are highlighted at, you know, during the festival itself. Um, why, why is those things walled off as this, like, we have this free content for people to go and look at. Um, I, you know, I, I'm just not seeing the things that I imagine are, um, you know, like I said, not that people like David or Alana are not interested in those stories. I'm interested in those stories too, but I'm not, but I'm, I'm seeing just those stories and not things that are more diverse and are speaking to a wider audience. But Abby, I'm thinking of one particular movie where I was just, you know, going on the website and neighbors, you know, it was, it was about mm-hmm. growing up in a Kurdish village on the Syrian sure. Turkish border directed by Manu. It was there. And that's something that piqued my interest right away. And that's something I wanted to see. It wasn't categorized somewhere else. It was part of the lineup. Sure. But let me ask you something, David, as a young Jew, Right. As a young gay yes. Jew, you look at that. There's a lot of stories there. But do you think that that um, accurately represents your experience as a young Jew? Right. The the cross section of films that the Toronto Jewish Film Festival is showing. No, Avi, Avi, not everything has to represent me to some degree. Right. If I am a young gay Jew, it does not mean that I have to see every movie represented in through me as a young gay Jewish person. I want to see things that are outside my experience. Right. I, I know that there's a lot of trends right now about, you know, uh, being more inclusive and showing people of all different diversities and all that, which is great, and don't get me wrong. But also, I think that you're assuming, Avi, that because it's important to you that every single festival needs to fit what is now considered to be the norm. Well, it's not, not saying that it... 
It's not me. It's Helen was the one saying that Helen's the one that's saying that anti-Semitism is, you know, the the point here. And we want to show the, the, the world what the Jewish community is about. And I'm saying I don't see many Sephardic films. I don't see many films about gay Jews. I don't see many films about young Jews stories. Um, I'm seeing a Jewish community that is a very, very specific box. Avi, I'm going to have to repeat myself. We're at the mercy of what's out there. Are you telling and me that there's play, no films that fit into this box? Consider, we have a lot of considerations. We have balance of countries. We've got films. Believe me, we see some films that they should pay me to watch them. They're they're not very good, and we are not going to we're not going to bend the rules to have mediocre films or bad films because we need to fill a certain slot and attract the younger people. I'm sorry, guys. You're just going to have to choose. You get what, what you we get have. and you don't get upset. And we I am going to make an open call now to all Jewish filmmakers, right, who think that they have great stuff and send your film to the Toronto Film Festival because I'm not sure. I, I, I have a feeling that um, there is a much broader selection of films available and, and they are just not being, um, they're not being approached. Well, this, this is good. I don't know how many people will listen to this, but send us in all the films that you have. Absolutely. Now, Helen, you really talked earlier on about how this festival is very important for the rise of anti-Semitism yes. to really make sure that you are combating anti-Semitism. Now, you also talked on your website about bringing in a lot of non-Jewish um, people into, into the Toronto Jewish Film Festival. Is that something that's really important to you to sort of show the non-Jews, this is who we are, this is our culture, these are our events. Is that, is, is, that as, is that motivating you then with the films that you are showing? You really want to expose the non-Jewish community to what we are as a people then? Why not? So then I'm curious, as Avi is then saying, are you interested in a very particular niche type of Judaism or are you interested in the full facet of Jews from around the world and you want to expose them to that. You know what? I did a radio interview last week with somebody who is not Jewish. And I started with, did you know that Wyatt Earp's wife, Josephine, was Jewish? And he said, no, he says, but I know now. There's so many things in that film that will appeal, I hope, to non-Jews and say, I mean, you know, the Levi's jeans, how they came to be, what happened when the Jews came to New York, for example, and they found a lot of anti-Semitism. And then the gold rush happened, so they went out to San Francisco in that area and how they joined the West and how they they became integrated, some of them did, and they were cowboys and stuff. So if you're if Jews don't know that story, I didn't know that story. As they're wearing their Stetson hats. For sure the, the non-Jews don't know that story, and it's kind of cute, I thought. I, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was kind of cute for them to see that we are everywhere. We're represented everywhere. If, if your goal is to ultimately combat anti-Semitism using cute stories, then all the power to you. Um, I think that... Um, it's not, it's, excuse me, it's not such cute stories. I know, stories. I know. I, I'm, a, I'm being a, a little facetious there, and I apologize for that. We are, but... Who we are, and we're everywhere, and we're not strange, and a Jew is not considered with, uh, with payas. A male with dressed in black. But, but with some of them are, and that's not. A, some but, of them but are. No, but there's no Haredi stories the in the Toronto Jewish Film Festival. Have, that's the concept some people have about Jews. Were, were there any Haredi stories this year in the Toronto Jewish Film Festival? Because that's a good. I don't think they, they but, that's that's year. a good twenty. Uh, that's a good ten to twenty percent of the Jewish community. Um, I understand that. First of all, they didn't. They never came because it was during the counting of the Omar. 
This but you're not. It's not about the Jews. Account. It's about the. It's about the non-Jews. Don't we want to show but heartwarming stories? We showed. We showed Schistel, Stitchel when it was around. We don't make the films. I can't. I can't call Israel and order up a film about Haredi Jews. I can't okay. do that. Everybody send Helen the I mean, content, that, the great Jewish content that 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 is out there because I think it is all out there um, and it needs to be seen more. Um, I do appreciate what you're trying to do, and I do appreciate um, where it's going. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I do wish you well, and I hope that you get all the people come to all the to all the fest, all the in-person screenings. And uh, it's starting June 9th this year. Is that it? And uh, yeah, there you go. You can go Thursday. check out. By the way, yeah. if you email, if you email me your contact, we will send you an opening night ticket. It's a great film okay. with Michael Aloni. Is that me or anybody in the anybody story. who's listening? No, no, any not anybody who's listening. I wish we could, but those of us that are participating, I'm happy to. Uh, okay, and and for other people, we're going to. Um, there's if you're concerned about distancing, or any of the other issues. Uh, none of the organiza arts organizations are asking for uh, vaccines anymore or uh, distancing. But there's 700 seats at the Bloor Cinema, so I, I doubt if 700 people will show up. So there will be distancing. We're going to say um, self-distancing. -dis I'm going to say that we're saying masks are optional but desired. So we're going to see how many people wear their masks. And I hope you guys will show guys will show up. And if you do, I'll be outside at opening night, and I'd love to see you. And thank you for this. It wasn't oh, wasn't <laughs> terrible. Thank you. I, uh, I I appreciate <laughs> that, and uh, I I do like Jewish film, and I will probably I'm interested in almost all of these films. Um, uh, but I'm I, I think I'm an outlier, and uh, but but that's a different discussion. Um, but do go check out films, and uh, do check out Jewish films. Uh, like we said, TJFF um, dot dot com and you want a couple of my let's favorites? give us your two highlights yes the jews of the wild west is my most favorite because it's so funny greener pastures is such a wonderful film as well and the the levies of monticello is also a wonderful film it's a doc they're all good they're all good they're all good. i love them all differently like my children you thank know? you helen zuckerman thank you so much You're welcome. Since this is an episode all about celebrating Jewish culture, we wanted to take the time to introduce a new recurring segment created by the CJN's Victoria Redden. You'll hear voices from great Canadian Jewish musicians, their inspirations, and a little bit of their work. To kick things off, here's Daniel Graves. My name's Daniel Graves. Uh, my new project's called Serlin Graves. Uh, the record's called Sad Songs for Sale. I've always loved the last songs on record, the sad songs, the ones that try and sort of culminate the whole experience. Those have always been my favorite. And uh, a lot of these songs, I mean, they're not all sad, but there's, there, there's, a, there's a mournful component to it. So, so the title kind of worked. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm really proud of it. I, I feel that it's some of the best uh, work that, that me and Joe have done. It has, you know, it has Watchmen written all over it because that that's our, our pedigree for the last several decades. Uh, and I just, I think it has something for everyone. And it's, it represents kind of my, my favorite types of songs, which are, which are the sad ones and, and the ones that make you think uh, and the ones you can tap your toes to. 
we we were in a reform uh, synagogue in in Winnipeg. That was that was our sort of faction and. And I didn't, and again, like you're a kid, you just realize, oh, well, this is synagogue. This is what, it, like every every rabbi shows up with an acoustic guitar and, and plays stuff, you know? That's sort of what you thought. But there are some, there are some melodies and some beautiful music that, and, and also the modes, like the scales that you use in, in Middle Eastern music or Hebrew music, like it, like that sort of Haftorah, Torah portion kind of kind of stuff is, uh, you just sort of like I grew up with that, so it ended up being a real big part of my a, a big part of my musicality. The first time I sang in front of people was at my bar mitzvah, and it was with the rabbi with his guitar and with my mom in a duet and in Hebrew. And but it just ends up being you know it just ends up being your life. And uh, now having the benefit of of hindsight, looking back on it, realizing yeah, well that played a big a uh, really big part in in my musical. Uh, you know, evolution, you know. My dad is, you know, one of the only Caribbean Jews I've ever met or come in contact with in, in several decades. It, it's, it's been very interesting just to sort of see how, how the world looks at you uh, when, when you don't look like what they expect. You know, like it's me and Lenny Kravitz, I think. But when you think of Lenny Kravitz, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not thinking, oh, he must have had a bar mitzvah, you know. What you do ends up being your, a bit of your identity and, and who you are. So for me, doing something like rock and roll and then getting, you know, having a bit of success with it, it ended up sort of defining who I was. They're not seeing my color or or my upbringing. Like, oh, like, check out check out that, that Jew can really sing or that black guy can really sing. And they're seeing, they're seeing what I can do. And, and I don't know, I, I guess, I think that's probably a good thing. Sad songs for sale, uh, sirlandgraves.com, uh, go check it out. Uh, we're really proud of it. Buy the record already, will ya? <laughs>
And I think the the founding uh, principle for both organizations and events was a similar thing, but where where they sort of differ is in, um, I would describe Clez Canada as a sort of somewhat inward experience. It's an immersive experience and something where people get their hands on the tools to become pr- practitioners of the culture and to transmit it themselves. That happens at Ashkenaz as well, but Ashkenaz from the beginning was something that was uh, very much outward facing about sharing Jewish culture and Jewish music um, with the broader community, uh, and particularly in Toronto, where uh, the, the context in which the festival takes place is is very very public. It's it's probably one of the most uh, open and and public forums where Jewish music and culture is is enjoyed by uh, diverse audiences. So um, I kind of have always thought of the two events as kind of two sides of of a coin, um, and there's a lot of sort of complementary transmission that happens between them. And um, I would say over the years, what has changed vis-a-vis Ashkenaz is that we have, we we were founded, obviously our name indicates, we were founded very much out of the Klezmer and Yiddish cultural revival. But in the last 15 years or so, our mandate has expanded quite a bit beyond that to where I think that we're more broadly about global Jewish music and culture. The, the Yiddish and the Eastern European is still kind of the existential seed of what we're about, and it informs how we go about curating in other other uh, realms. But we really, at this point, seek to at some point, um, reflect the, the diversity. At of, some point, you of, figured of, out that Ashkenazi normativity isn't so cool anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that might be part of it. Um, it was, you know, it's, and I wouldn't even define it so much in the negative the way you just did. I would actually define it more as that, like, we have so much more to celebrate about uh, J- Jewish culture around the world. And I think, in a way, the ethos behind the the Yiddish and Klezmer revival is actually a very generous one that wants to borrow from other cultures and to reflect the ways in which Jewish uh, art and culture interacts with the world around it, whether it's Eastern European or, or from another part of the world. What do you guys see as what makes you guys set apart um, that you seem to be attracting a younger audience? You seem to be um, doing things that are perceived as more relevant. Um, do you think that that's actually true? Or do you think that um, maybe that's just a perception and you are a bunch of stuff for old fogies? But um, I don't think that's true. Like I said, you go to these events, um, you do seem to be um, hitting something. Um, Is there something that's thought through that's stated about this? Or are you just um, lucky to be um, grabbing onto something? I think I think it, you know, there's there's a little of column A, a little column B. I think, you know, part of it is, as Eric is saying, you know, the nature of the Yiddish culture and klezmer scene is uh, sort of ipso facto defined by an ethos of openness and and constantly searching for those connections between, you know, the past and the present and making things, uh, you know, bitingly relevant. I think that's part of, of who we are. Um, but I also think there's, there's a great deal of intentionality. Um, you know, you know, like our programs are based on putting generations together in a room and not hiding, you know, who you are. And we get, we get a very diverse, uh, you know, swath of of people uh and people come from different religious backgrounds ethnic backgrounds cultural political i mean 
And what is astounding to me, uh, you know, at Cliss Canada, people come around a table to eat uh, and you'll have, you know, an avowed communist and a, a you know, Satmar Chosid, and I'm not making this up, this is happens, you know, all the time, and people break bread and they... Uh, they argue, and but they argue with love, and they come around, uh, you know, to to engage in something that's important to everybody at the table. So, and and we are creating, you know, Ashkenaz and Klitz Canada create those environments where people uh, can be themselves and engage in something, and it and it's very very deep and thick and rich, and uh, I think that's why you know we get you know the kinds of crowd. The kind, the kind of crowd and the, and the numbers that you get, uh, I think that's that's why we're, we're offering something of substance. And you, you mentioned, you know, coming around a table, joining together and, you know, looking into what a bit of what Klez Canada does. You know, you have these summer retreats, you have these fellowships that you provide too. I, I'm just wondering if if that was an original motivation to get things going, because here on Bojokai, we talk about how to sustain and build a community. And I'm wondering if those kind of works, rather than just the festival itself coming together for music, if if the type of building a community has really helped you achieve your goals of, of, of growing this base. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, community building for me is is what we do. Right. Um, we create the space where people come together and this culture is is transmitted for for most of the people who are coming to our programs this is not something you learn in your family anymore this is you don't live in a neighborhood or in a you know geographic place where this is the culture around you we create the structure where you are talking to people who have you know grown up or mastered a part of this culture and you're 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 taking it on and that's not going to work uh, if you don't have personal relationships, if you don't have a community uh, relationship binding people together. Uh, and the fellowships and the scholarships, uh, that's very much by design. It's to make programs accessible, you know, financially, uh, logistically accessible for people who wouldn't be able to be there. Um, and that's by and large younger people, you know, or professional artists, you know, people that don't necessarily have uh, a lot of disposable income, you know, to try to level the playing field and create a community that is accessible to a wide variety of people. I don't know if this is true of Ashkenaz Fest. Um, I've, I just moved to Toronto very recently, so I haven't actually been able to go to it, but I have heard a lot about Clis Canada, and I know some of my relatives have attended and told me that they were surprised at how many non-Jews actually were also attending the festival. And I'm curious if that ever plays a part in Ashkenaz Fest. Like, do you have any like Jewish music enthusiasts just show up just to listen? Because I understand more like Klez Canada, you're going to learn with all these masters. But, um, you know, a, a lot of times, and we've talked about this on the podcast too, are we creating events that are supposed to be for Jewish people and establishing community? Like where is the place where non-Jews are allowed to come in as participants or as observers? And when is it not the right time? So curious to hear your, your thoughts on that. Well, I think that that's actually, in a lot of ways, the essence of Ashkenaz sort of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning in terms of uh, some of the differences between our two events and organizations. Um, because Ashkenaz does what it does in such a public forum, it is by design and intent, it is to share it with the rest of the world. And, um, you know, we estimate that over half of our audience is non-Jewish. And, and part of that is as a result of the, the, the context in which we're operating, Harborfront Centre in Toronto is a, a, a well-known public entertainment space 
Um, it's a, a, a massive magnet for tourists in the summer. Um, so a lot of people who end up at Harborfront Center, they just kind of go there either because their, their, their tourism book tells them go check out Harborfront Center, or if they live in the city, they just know that Harborfront's a place where you can go on a summer day and you're going to hear something or see something interesting and it will reflect diversity and multiculturalism uh, and quality. And so that's um, so central to, to what we do and, and, and uh, as a metric of our uh, success, we measure our success in very large part by the degree to which we reach non-Jewish audiences. Um, um, so that's the audience side of it, but from the from the performance side of it as well, it's the same thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of Jewish music or Jewish culture festivals around the world, particularly in North America, where the uh, the curatorial mandate is defined in in such a broad way that it's kind of more about if you're Jewish, you can perform here. We're about showcasing Jewish people, but then you have Jewish people come and do something that has absolutely no relevance to Jewish history or culture and you know artistic, some endemic meaning for uh, for for Jewish culture. Um, we flip that around the other way. We would program an entire festival of non-Jewish performers if everything they were doing was was about Jewish culture, was about preserving, amplifying, and and transmitting that culture um, and moving it into the future. Um, so I think every year, if you look at our, our, our festival lineups year after year, you see many, many non-Jewish people uh, who are involved in it. And that's that includes both people who are non-Jews who are coming to this culture out of their own artistic interest, but it also includes um, uh, people that end up, we, we end up working with because we want to foster cross-cultural artistic uh, creation. That's a huge part of what we do. And again, I think very much um, informed by the cultural ethos of Toronto. Uh, that's, 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 you know, the essence of, of art and culture in Toronto is about putting disparate things together and see what comes out. Um, so I think that that's kind of a hallmark of, uh, of what we do for sure. But then could someone come and come to the festival, let's say, and have no idea there's any connection to Judaism at all? You know, if we were to take a, a poll or a survey and be like, hey, how are you enjoying these festivals? Did you know that they're very Jewish? They'd be like, I had no idea. The weather was nice. It was perfectly sunny outside. I just wanted to have a good time. How How is that at all important to you? Or is there sort of something happening as a, as a water? It's just a watered down version of what it means to be a Jew today. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I would challenge that, that it's, you know, the, the watered down thing. Um, I, I think for a lot of people, um, I, I would put it this way, that for a lot of people, if they stumble in and they don't realize they're in a, a, a temporary Jewish space, so what? <laughs> you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think for, for a lot of people, their only touchstone to the Jewish community is to stumble in and accidentally discover something at Ashkenaz, which then might challenge whatever perceptions or stereotypes they have in their mind about Jews and Jewish people. And so what we really want to convey is, is you know, pride in our, our, our creativity and our, our sort of cultural raw material and its ability to interact with the world around it and, and the openness with which we welcome other people. So what I'm hearing um, from both of you is that at its core, the thing that makes culture relevant is when it's no longer this um, consumer model. 
right? Here is some music and listen to it and, you know, be entertained or be informed and move on. Um, but creating that um, bond between the creator and the listener or making the listener into the creator, having this act of actual creation and, and actual interaction with the art itself is essential. It's easy to see that within Class Canada where, um, for the most part, most of the attendees to this week-long retreat are creating in some way or another. Um, how do you guys do that in Ashkenaz, where it is more of this festival model? How do you um, make sure that there is some sort of interaction going on? And Sebastian, also, when you're programming during the year, right, where it is more of a um, concert-ish sort of format, um, what are you doing to keep that interaction going so that this relevance, so that this idea that we are not just an audience that is consuming music, but we are part of something bigger, um, becomes central central on the plate I'll, I'll answer briefly and just say that um uh one of the key things about our model is the extent to which most of our programming is free 90 percent of what we do is free and that is very much uh i mean there's no business model in that there's no commercial imperative in that we're not in business to make money we're in business to lose money pretty much <laughs> you know um so i can relate to that <laughs> like all good artists yeah so i mean welcome to the lucrative world of podcasting here <laughs> yeah exactly um the the degree to which we're giving it away is really says so much about what the mandate is and what the mission is it's about to reach people it's about an altruistic instinct to share what yeah but what are you doing to get them to to feel like they are part of it and not just consuming the music. Interesting question. I'm going to pass to Sebastian on this one for the moment. It's interesting because our even our year-round programming, we do very very little, uh, you know, presentational kind of stuff. Um, and um, you know, I I get this question all the time. But you know, I say, oh, I, I I'm director of this this music organization. People are like, oh, so what do you play? And I'm like, I, I, I'm I'm not a musician. Um, I've been participating in this community for basically my whole adult life. Um, I, you know, I do Yiddish culture stuff, um, but I'm not a musician, but I have never felt that I am less than, or I don't take part in the community um, because I'm not necessarily the person on stage. And I think, you know, a lot of our uh, programs, uh, even if they're a concert, you know, there's there's some sort of interactivity. Um, there's, uh, you know, something you can bring home with you. Um, but by and large, we don't uh, put on, on big shows. Um, it's, it, you know, there's so many amazing people in the, in the Yiddish culture world globally and in Montreal locally that are uh, able to put on uh, big shows, you know, with, with, great finesse and, and, and have the resources to do it that we might not necessarily have. So, you know, my, my thinking is we will leave it to them. That's that part of our sort of network. Uh, our mission, our job is, is to create that community. So most of the things we do uh, throughout the year are dance workshops or, um, you know, there's a conversation about, uh, we just did a, a, a program online where we talked about three settings of the same poem by a Montreal Yiddish writer. Uh, and we had people, yes, people performed their, their settings, but there was also this large conversation. And then, you know, like any good Jewish event, people like to talk. Uh, and, and the audience was very much a part of, of that conversation. Um, 
So I think for us, it's very much like sort of baked, baked in um, and we will, you know, veer towards the events that might be smaller and, and uh, less flashy, but a lot more interactive. I'm curious how you pick your artists for both of you. Is it because you talked a little bit about multiculturalism and keeping it young and relevant or just accessible to all the different generations, but there's so many people out there. What makes you know that's the one that I want to bring to the festival this year? Oh, that's tough. Eric, you can start for this one and then and I'll head out. All right. Thanks for passing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, as an artistic director, um, in, at least in my context, and I know other contexts are, are different, I, I have quite a bit of leeway to um, allow my own tastes and my own sense of, uh, you know, what I like in, in music and art to come through. At the same time, I have a, uh, a mental, if not concrete, checklist that I need to fulfill in terms of different kinds of programming. Representation has always been, you know, before representation became fashionable, it was already something that I was living by in this job because it's, it's actually crucial. Um, and the, the bounds of representation have expanded quite a bit over the last few years, for sure. Um, but I like to think that we were actually kind of already ahead of that curve a few years back, that, that we were really seeking to represent the, the broadest uh, picture of, of Jewish cultural creation and, and creativity. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff that I program that I personally don't relate to, that doesn't, doesn't jazz me, doesn't get me excited, but I know somebody's excited about it. And, and so as an artistic director, it's a great responsibility uh, and, and, I, and I drive myself nuts and you know, spend many more hours looking at my programming grid and contemplating my choices than maybe some other people do because that's just the kind of person I am and I agonize over a lot of the choices I make because I really want to make everybody happy. And like, that's the surest way to end up disappointed. And I often do um, because you can't make anybody, everybody happy, especially working in the Jewish community. But I do my damnest. I do my best to try to make as many people happy as I can and at least be able to retort when somebody says to me, and this is, this is the classic Jewish thing. The audience comes and tells you what they don't like, you know? And, and it's like, okay, well, you know, well, are you done yet? That's the yeah, Jewish, that's the Jewish thing. That, you know, the, part. The, the Jewish work is to say not making the most people happy, but making the fewest people pissed off. <laughs> so I, I prepare myself for those conversations by always being ready to say, well, let's hear what you did like. Or, okay, you didn't like that? Well, how about this? Why didn't you like that? And, and you know, sort of be able to horse trade, uh, in, in a sense, in those kinds of conversations to just... Uh, in a lot of ways, I mean, I've had conversations like that where where I've actually become somewhat uh, aggressive with the other person and, and tried to actually make them feel foolish for coming to me to tell me that they didn't like this one thing out of 80 or 90 things that we programmed and then go back and say, well, let's talk about what you did like. And then they tell me what they like. And I said, and so this is what you brought to me that you didn't like this one. Thing? Yeah, Eric, I deeply, I deeply relate to everything you're saying. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I would I would say it's very much the same same for us. There's you know sort of categories we we want to recognize and kinds of people we want uh, on our stages and in our classrooms, um, but it's it's also you know trying to figure out what are the 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 trends in our scene and and one of our 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 
programming coordinators uh, for a long time, Christian Dobbin from, from Berlin, uh, had this great turn of phrase, and I'm going to butcher it now, now that I, I, I said, oh, it's a lovely phrase. But he, he basically said, you know, the, the festival venue is where you reflect what's going on in our scene, but it's also where you make what's going on happen in our scene. Um, so, you know, you try everything Eric is talking about, absolutely. And I feel like we also have this other responsibility. We're trying to follow what's what's happening in the scenes we're, we're a part of and responding to. And we're trying to make things happen as well. If we see like there's a desire for something, a direction that people want to go in, we can we can push. Um, and it's and it's kind of impossible, but it's kind of amazing. And uh, yeah, and you make a lot of people happy and a lot of people miserable. And so I'm going to give you both a lightning round then before we close off. Um, what was the greatest creation that Clez Canada ever did, Sebastian? And then Eric, what was the thing that was the most pissed off, right, that somebody was at you? What was that episode? Uh, give us the quick uh, rundown. Sebastian. That's a lightning round question. I, that you're asking ask me like... Yeah, just the moment uh, that you created. It's something that you okay, said that was I, I'll take the, the easy route because this is something that makes me cry every single year. Tears of joy. Uh, we have this tradition called the Backwards March. Uh, this is something that was created by a theater maker, Jenny Romaine, and a folklorist, Itzik Gothisman. This is a tradition that was uh, learned in an ethnographic interview uh, with Arya Lush uh, from a, a shtetl in Romania. They had this tradition where they walked backwards uh, while Shabbos came in and faced the setting sun and they walked backwards to shul and they all sang this particular niggin. Uh, we have recreated that tradition uh, at Klez Canada. Uh, you get, you know, 500 people at Camp in Abrith at the, at the base of a hill facing the sun going into a lake and 500 people are playing and singing the same tune uh, and we end at the crest of the hill, sun is going down Everybody puts down put that puts down their instruments. Everybody is singing. Shabbos has started, and I am bawling. And it is the most incredible uh, sort of reclamation of of a tradition. It is the perfect expression of community. And no matter if you're religious or or secular or something in between, you're Jewish, non-Jewish, what whatever. In that moment, is it it is impossible not to just feel. Um, and it is it is one of the most incredible moments. And, and what is so incredible about it is I've done this, you know, so many times and it never stops being being meaningful. So I think that and then it is and it lives like other communities have adopted it as part of their Shabbos practice. We adopted it in our house every Shabbos. My sibling actually uh told me that was like a highlight. He was really encouraging me to apply this year and I didn't think I'd be able to. And then when I was researching for this episode, I saw that a wait list exists for the scholarship. So I put my name in yesterday. But um, he spoke really highly, specifically of that moment of, of going down, as you just described. It sounds beautiful. and reminds me of my camp years singing going into Shabbat. All right, Eric, you're going to have to top that. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know if... I, I'm not sure I can... I can um uh, fulfill the, 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 you, you were asking me to come up with, a, a, a the opposite. Yeah. 
if not, you know, if you want to come up with the thing that you've created that was the greatest through Ashkenaz, the, the greatest collaborative concert right. or something. Well, I mean, there's so awesome. many. It's really hard. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, when people ask me, what's your favorite this or your favorite that, I, I, I never commit to a favorite anything. I, you know, the best I can do is a top five or a top ten list. Um, so there have been, I, I think in Ashkenaz's history, and, you know, there was ten years of history before I got here, um, but over 27 a years, thousand years of history. Wow. That's true. Around. Yes. I think that what Ashkenaz has really, uh, accomplished consistently over the years is, um, we've commissioned a whole lot of new work. Uh, we've, we've actively curated the creation of new groups, new collaborations, uh, and new work. And that, you know, through the years, every festival, you've all, there's always been something new, something that, that, you know, wouldn't have existed had we not nudged it into existence or created the context where it might have been born. Um, and this includes, you know, artists and groups that have gone on to win Grammy Awards and Juno Awards and, and tour around the world. Um, we really have prided ourselves on being the leading edge for a lot of new artists and, you know, North American premieres or world premieres of, of artists or works um, that haven't been seen in, in Canada or North America before. Um, we also have our own Ashkenaz parade, which is sort of a, a, a parallel to the march that's done at Clis Canada. And that's something that started from the very beginning of the festival in the 90s. And uh, especially there were two years in, uh, in the 90s when we did this parade from Kensington Market right down Spadina Street uh, to Spadina Road to, um, to Harborfront. And it was there's some footage you can check out online of, of these events, which were just extraordinary displays of, of Jewish cultural pride right in the heart of Toronto, marching down Spadina and have, doing this kind of existential journey from the old Jewish Toronto of Kensington Market to the new uh, 21st century Toronto of Ashkenaz at Harborfront Center. You walked all the way to Richmond Hill? <laughs> yeah, right. We take that one. That's a whole other question. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, Eric, Sebastian, uh, it was wonderful to have you guys on. Uh, I cannot wait to take part in um, whatever uh, you guys are programming this year and uh, keep it up. Thank you. Thanks so much. Shane and Dank. Our word of wisdom this week comes from Shlomi Steinmetz. Today's the first yurt site of Shlomi's son, Dovi, who died in the tragedy in Miron on Lagba Omer last year. And I reached Shlomi in Israel, where he had traveled for Lagba Omer this year. So we came to Israel because it's uh, coming up to my son Dovi's first yurt site. Uh, he was nifted last year in Lagba Omer in Miron. The tragedy that happened, the Miron tragedy, as everybody's calling it now. Tomorrow night we're going to be having is uh, we're making a whole uh, memorial suda and we're going to be going on Thursday morning to Harmonuchat, the gravesite. I wanted to do something. Uh, everybody wants to try to do, you know, as a parent, you always want what's best for your, for your children. And uh, obviously when they're alive, you do the best you can. And unfortunately, you know, when God decides otherwise, we, we try to keep the memories alive by doing things. And I'm trying to try to turn over the world in his chos, in his honor, basically. Uh, so the project is called the Animam, the Davi Steinmetz Animamim Initiative. That's a, we gave it a name because we started for out of scratch and we didn't even, you know, we just started going. And basically it's trying to get the whole world to say Animamim, which is the 13 principles of faith 
which was uh, made by the Rambam 800 years ago. It's an optional prayer that people say after davening. It's in every sitter in the back. But, you know, most people don't say it. But getting that many people on board and the tremendous, tremendous feedback I'm getting, people are telling me, yes, I ask everybody to start saying it in Davi's honor, in Davi's chus, but they get afterwards, they're telling me how how good they feel about it and how much chizik it gives them. So we just kept going. I mean, initially I printed 5,000 cards and 15,000. Now I'm printing 30,000 at a time, and we just printed hundred well, over 150,000 cards already. When a person goes through a tragedy, I mean, again, I went, me and my wife, our family, we've went through the biggest tragedy of our lives. I mean, the, I don't wish it upon anybody to have to go through what we've been through. And in order to try to deal with it, to be able to live, to continue living, and to move forward one day at a time, one step forward, if you have belief and you have a munah, and munah is the belief, and that you truly believe, again, we don't understand why this happened. I mean, I can't wrap my head around it. I, I still can't. You know, I have a 21-year-old boy which was full of life, uh, a, a massive heart, was always there for all his friends, did everything for everybody, and, and you know, and, and, and God was mistaken. But that, that's what he decided. I don't understand why. That's, you know, that's what Hashem wanted. But being machazik myself and, and, and doing things and truly believing it, and, and you keep on repeating every day why there's one, you know, giving a munah. And, and it's not just saying the it's You start living the alimamans. And then it goes into you, so it's going to help anybody. Everybody goes through challenges, unfortunately. You know, the, the world isn't perfect. What I want to say, the Alimam started just as a, you know, a random in, in our shul. They were giving the Shiroman twice a week, and then we made a, we made a website, which we uploaded the Shiroman there, which is animamin.net, A-N-I-M-A-A-M-I-N.net. And you can go see who Dovi was, what he was, and you have the Shiroman online. And we actually just came out with a book on the Animam by Art Scroll. I just spoke to somebody, and somebody I'm in Israel. <laughs> the whole world is calling me these days, and he shared with me an interesting verse, which I found very interesting. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said that when people talk about things that a, a person has passed is doing, like if people are talking today about the Munna and things like that, that that really shows that the person who died was really part of it. He really, really believed it. You know, it gives me chizuk at least to know that we're trying to do the right thing in his honor, and we want to, you know, we want his name to live on. And I and I and I said by the shiva, there's not going to be anybody in the world who hasn't heard of Davi Steinman. And now it's time in our show where we like to talk about our nachas of the week, the thing that made us feel good uh, about being Jewish uh, over the past week. David, what's your nachas this week? So it is officially the Battle of Alberta, and I don't mean that about Jason Kenney resigning last night, but it is officially the Edmonton Oilers versus the Calgary Flames. And I'm talking about Zach Hyman, who uh, who plays for the Edmonton Oilers. He's a left winger, not necessarily politically speaking, but uh, I guess that's something relevant to hockey, right? Being a left winger? I, I don't really know. So anyway, yeah. So Hyman uh, is Jewish. He's a member of our tribe. He grew up in Toronto. He went to the Community Hebrew Academy of Toronto. But sadly, uh, Zach, um, you're going to have to go home with tears in your eyes because there is no way that the Oilers are going to defeat my new hometown pride and joy, the Calgary Flames, or as I like to call them, the Flamers. I my my dream is still alive to make Kiddush 
on uh, the Stanley Cup one one day. Yes. And if Zach Hyman hoists that cup, I um, will reach out. We are going to try and get this to finally happen. I want to do Kiddush on the Stanley Cup. Um, I've gotten close in the past through various channels. It has never happened yet. You've, you've talked to Gary Let's Batman? Let's make this a reality. I have not talked to Gary Batman. Okay. No. Alana, what's your Nachas of the Week? So you mentioned earlier how your wife is in a show coming up. I happen to be privy to the information that it's a show about Chaum. And it was just it announced is. that there's going to be an animated special called Chaum, the Smartest Place on Earth for HBO Max, and it's being developed by Sasha Baron Cohen. Chaum would make a great animated show. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to hear it and see it and uh, maybe they'll call my wife and ask her uh, to be the voice of uh, something uh, in there there you go she's all she's gonna be all chelmed up i hope so we'll see um my nachas can we sing a song now do we, do we get to sing all i hear all day is the chelm songs in the musical i don't I, I don't i haven't seen the staging yet i'm waiting for it but uh yes um chelm the animated what's series what's your nachas avi um also tv um Tehran season two came out and it has a strong Canadian connection because it was filmed in uh, Vancouver. Uh, big chunks of it were filmed in Vancouver. Uh, there's only a few episodes out. Um, I, I have high hopes that it's not going to be the uh, issue, the, the same thing that happened last year was uh, where, or with the first season where uh, it sort of died in the middle where they really tried to drag a, uh, you know, a four episode story into a 10 episode story. Um, maybe it won't happen this year, but I like the fact that it's an Israeli show that was uh, filmed in Canada and uh, stars Glenn Close um, amongst many other fine actors so uh, I have hopes for it and I will report back as the episodes release weekly uh, on Apple TV Tehran season 2 doing me okay so far. I'm looking forward to seeing it. You made it sound like we're going to have a new segment <laughs> just reviewing that show <laughs> as I appear weekly. We we're going to talk no, about no, it. We're not going to talk about it. How about <laughs> I report back when uh, if and when something actually interesting happens in the show. Oh, all right. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of May 20th, Parashat Behar. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like Bonjour Chai, send it to a friend because I'm sure they will like it too. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. This episode has been brought to you by Looking Back, Moving Forward, 160 Years of Jewish Life in B.C., Published by the Jewish Museum and Archives of British Columbia for their 50th anniversary, this elegant volume is a once-in-a-generation collection of Jewish life and history throughout the province. Order your copy today at jewishmuseum.ca.